Culture Podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Anya Crittenden, Associate Editor at The Tracking Board, and with me this week are my two co-hosts, because HD is back. Hooray! So introduce yourselves, guys. I'm returned. I'm Hui Chen Bui. I'm a writer for Slash Film and a pop culture journalist in D.C. And I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area. All right, I'm back from my island vacation, guys, and I'm here to join my co-hosts for our monthly millennial movie review. And this month, we are reviewing the biggest movie of May, which was Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 was directed and written by James Gunn. It stars Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, Dave Bautista, Vin Diesel, Bradley Cooper, Michael Rooker, and Karen Gillan, as well as Palm Clementif. And And Kurt Russell. And Kurt Russell, of course. As Ego, the living planet. Yes. Although, um, that is a bit of a spoiler, but uh, as you know for our reviews, spoilers abound. So, the synopsis... In the trailers. Yeah, well, kind of. Like, in the later trailers. If you watched just the first trailer, you wouldn't have any idea. You're just like, oh, hey, it's Kurt Russell. With That's true. With great flowing Kurt Russell hair. <laughs> Anyways, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is a sequel to 2014's Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, and it's about... I'm going to read the IMDb synopsis. The Guardians must fight to keep their newfound family together as they unravel the mystery of Peter Quill's true parentage. So, let's get to it, guys. Um, so what did you guys think about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2? Will be you go I'll first. Go like, I'll go first. <laughs> I'll just, I'll put it out there. I like the film. It was fun. I had a good time. It, it had, it had, a, I liked, I liked, personally, myself, Will be Barrett Dobbs IV, liked the character development that the characters went through. I thought that they matured in cool ways, and obviously some some subplots that we can get into were uncomfortable and awkward, but there were some that I liked. For example, the nebula and... Uh, Yondu? What's your face? Oh. Gamora. 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 Sorry. It's been a long day. Uh, Gamora and Nebula, I liked their, the strengthening of their relationship, and it was much more fleshed out. Um... The overall plot was very much a, I guess you would call it, it, they're trying to do Empire Strikes Back, but it's so noticeable that it's not good in the plot like that, you know, because it's like darker and they divide the crew up Mm. and, you know, parenting issues like that, like, you know, classic Empire Strikes Back sequel tropes, I guess. You know, like, a lot of sequels try to be, like, yeah, we were going for, like, the Empire Strikes Back vibe, you know, <laughs> you know? Um, and I feel like this movie wears that on its sleeves and not always in the great, greatest way. Um, but at the end of the day, I had a good time and I liked the soundtrack. Uh, some people didn't like the first soundtrack as, or the, the second soundtrack as much as the first. I like it. It's not bad. So, All right. yeah, All right. those, are my, those, are, those are my thoughts. On Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, directed and written by James Gunn. <laughs> All right. Um, Anya, why don't you give us your take? I'm sure it'll I be think... the same. 
I think this is one of the worst Marvel movies in the entirety of the MCU. And there it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, for full like disclosure, I do not care for the first Guardians movie. Uh, so I went into this film with low expectations, but this film wasn't even able to meet the low expectations. It could not even cross that bar that I had set for it. I think as a film, it is too long. It's too boring. Too many storylines. Not coherent. I don't care about the characters. I have no reason to care about the characters. I think they all actually pretty much remain static. I think it's a Marvel movie for bros, as the first film was, but this one even more so because Nicole Perlman didn't co-write it like she did the first movie. So now we have even more casual misogyny and even more just a full-on two hours and 15 minutes of testosterone, which I did not need because I have that in all my other superhero films. And I think Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is a bad film. I'm curious, Anya, would you rate this uh, worse or better than uh, widely accepted bad films like Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice? Oh, no. Batman v Superman is worse. Mm. Yeah, Batman v Superman is still worse than this movie. Um, but this movie is down there for me with, like, Age of Ultron. And okay. the, which is my least favorite Marvel movie. With the, yeah, it of definitely, all the films. yeah, it definitely deserves that spot. So it, it's definitely down there for me. There are a couple things I liked in the film, but I can probably count them on one hand. All right. Oh, um, I would like to say that Anya wrote a really great piece about the first Guardians of the Galaxy and why it's an overrated and not great Marvel film for Slash Film. It's a really good um, unpopular opinion piece. So if you guys want to check that out, we will link it in our blog post. You're welcome, Anya. So I will be the middle ground here. I didn't... I. I thought it was a fine, okay movie. Uh, I thought it was worse than the first Guardians of the Galaxy and didn't quite hit a lot of the emotional beats that the first one did. And I thought its biggest problem was the character of Peter Quill, which was really unfortunate because the whole plot revolved around him and you know coming to terms with finding his father and fatherhood and everything like that. And um, I felt really unfortunate because he felt like a the mo- least developed character the least interesting character of the whole movie he didn't do anything he had no agency essentially he was just kind of dragged along by the plot whereas i was really um compelled by nebula's um arc and yondu's arc i love both of them especially nebula she really appealed to me especially like her storyline of being abused of childhood abuse and that whole really that whole interesting um push and pull between her and Gamora, her sister, they have a really good um, dynamic, and I really like that, and I wish that was explored more, or even the center of it. Um, in Anya's first, in Anya's slash film piece, actually, talk, she talked about how Gamora should have been the main character, and in this one, I really saw that dynamic and really wished I could have seen a whole movie of that. It's so good and compelling, yeah. and they're really... To, like, comment on that, mm-hmm. I think Nebula is actually a failure of a character. Really? Because she should be one of the best characters and mm-hmm. on paper she is she is one of the more compelling but because the first movie 
forced Peter Quill upon us as the protagonist instead of Gamora and Nebula as they should have been, Mm -hmm. like, plot-wise and narratively. In this film, it was a lot of um, telling and not showing. So we were just told that Nebula went through all these things. We were just told what her relationship with Gamora was. We were just told how she was feeling. We never saw that develop. We never saw it actually happen because the first film didn't explore that as it should have for the plot. And so Mm -hmm. in this film, the payoff didn't actually work. Right. Like, I agree with you. Nebula is really compelling and she's Mm -hmm. really interesting and I really like her. And she and Gamora's relationship is the most interesting in the entire film. But it should be better. Yeah. Well, it works for me. It didn't really bother me so much that they were telling it because it was a really well-acted and well-written scene, I think. The part where she talked about where she just wanted a sister. Um, I really yeah, like that. to Karen Gillan for yeah. giving a great performance. It's really hard to under all of that, um, all those prosthetics and all that makeup. So that part of that part of the movie um, really struck me. But yeah, otherwise, I, I mean, I liked Kurt Russell, but I felt like his character worked as a concept, but not so much as on the payoff. Um, but let's get into that with our three parts of our review. So we go into structure, characters, and um, themes of the movie. Uh, shall we go into characters first? Sure. That could, that'll that lead into plot because, you know, they split up the characters. And... Yes. All right. Let's do characters first. Uh, so we talked a little about this in our overall reviews, but um, our, the main character, the main problem was basically the character development um, of the main characters. I said main a lot. Um, so Peter Quill was kind of terrible, and all the supporting characters were great. I really loved Nebula. I really loved Yondu. Even um, Mantis was really good, even though she was kind of a co- comic sidekick. Mm-hmm. I appreciated. Okay, so I wa- I went into this movie not liking Yondu as a character. I thought mm-hmm. he was like you could tell that James Gunn just wanted his friend to be in his movie mm-hmm. in Guardians of the Galaxy. And I was like, okay, he's in this more. That's going to be a bummer. But I actually really liked what they did with him in this movie. And I came away, like, appreciating the the arc that he went through. It was a little quick because there was a lot of, like, kind of like what we were talking about with Nebula. There was a lot of telling. Mm -hmm. But I thought, but I think that, like you said, with Nebulous, I think that Michael Rooker did a good job of acting his emotional arc out. Yeah, I agree. It was a little bit of a last-minute like switcheroo, essentially, because we were basically um, expected... We basically expected to treat Yondu as a villain. Like, in the last film, he was kind of an antagonist, uh, kind of an unlikely ally, but we never really saw him as the father figure that he uh, ends up becoming. So the ultimate emotional climax, um, in which, spoilers, which we warned up at the the beginning of this episode, uh, Peter, um, Yondu sacrifices his life for Peter, and Peter basically, like, sees him die in front of him. Uh, It doesn't, it almost doesn't work, but... I really think that, like, they do enough legwork, like, halfway through the movie in which they show that, you know, Yondu realized that he was um, trafficking children and that he tried to save Peter from that fate and in the end, you know, saw him as his own child. Even though we only got, like, one little flashback of that, I felt like it worked for me. Yeah, I don't think... Michael Rooker is great. Mm -hmm. But, like, it doesn't 
work. And a performance can only go so far to save a bad script. And that's the problem with this film is that, well, first off, I don't care about any of these characters. I have no reason to. Mm -hmm. Um, James Gunn hasn't made me care about them, partially because they're so mean. And this one, this film was even worse with that. Like I, one of my big things is that this film is very mean and I didn't like it. The comedy wasn't funny Mm. because it was mean and just because it was boring. Um, Only a few of the gags worked. Most of them didn't. And, like, as as great as Michael Rooker is, as you guys said, they had to tell us that Yondu saw Peter as a, like, as he was a father figure. Mm -hmm. And I get that we didn't see, like, their flashbacks together, really, in the first film or this one. Like, just telling me that doesn't make me feel anything. It just means that you guys wanted to have an emotional ending to your film, and this is how you were going to do it because you brought in Ego and he's not the father figure. So mm-hmm. we're going to make Yon do it instead. And you guys are going to feel things when he dies. But I was like, why should I feel anything for this character? I have no reason to. Yeah, I agree with that to an extent. I do think that this movie suffered a lot from the first film's intent to just have fun. Like the first Guardians of the, of the Galaxy really set itself apart as just something that was unrelated to the larger MCU and was just like its own little corner and was fun and just didn't really have any stakes despite being, you know, about the galaxy in general. It didn't right. feel I mean, quite like, as heavy. Like Infinity, Infinity Stone plot, si- plot aside, mm-hmm. it was really much its own thing. Yeah. Like the whole Infinity Stone, despite being like a really high stakes um, object was essentially a MacGuffin in the first film. Whereas, oh, and they all have been. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Um, whereas in this one, they really tried to have emotional stakes um, instead of, you know, galaxy-sized stakes. But even when they expanded those emotional stakes, it didn't feel quite as real. Like, the whole... The part where, like, um, Ego's counterparts across the planet start taking over, it feels just, like, so... I don't know. It, it doesn't it suffers, feel like it's... it's... It suffers from the superhero trope of an unnecessarily unnecessarily uh, big and uh, CGI-heavy third act. Yeah. I and mean, that's the whole Marvel that, stuff, that's, like, problem as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, you know, what I... Throughout most of this movie, I was like, okay, this so this is a very personal movie obviously they're the guardians of the galaxy so something will have to be saved at some point Mm -hmm. but i liked that they these storylines were much more deep like personalized and for the characters and not these characters are grouped together to save the galaxy and they barely know each other this Mm -hmm. is this was very much about the personal stakes and then they turned the personal stakes of peter and his father finding out who his father is and the emotional baggage that comes with that and turned it into a literal galaxy galaxy saving plot and they like you know they tried their they only showed like brief clips of like egos plants coming mm. to fruition across the galaxy and then most of it was taking place inside ego himself mm. in the planet's core and so, like, a lot of it was disjointed, and you weren't really sure what's going on. And, you know, there were moments I liked. I liked the fact that there was, like, the the scene that they showed in the trailer with Groot and Rocket, 
was interesting because it was a lot longer in the movie and it almost was played for laughs that while all the big action was going on, they were having this mo- character moment. It was a very, and, um, the Zeppo moment, which was fun. Yeah. And they, and then the same baby Groot is basically the Zeppo in this is that he could, because he's so small, he can't do any of the action. So like the title sequence was really, I liked the title sequence. The title sequence was fun was and Cause it was like him dancing around to the music. And I he think had the title all. sequence was terrible filmmaking. <laughs> Okay. Like the I enjoyed it for the most was, part. Was so disjointed, and it didn't have a through line. It tried to with group, but didn't work. And I just thought the title sequence was like a mess. Okay. okay. Which is <laughs> one of the things I like about this film is its cinematography and production design is gorgeous. Like mm. this film looks beautiful. That's very yeah. true. It looks very stunning as opposed to that will I will say that it looks very different and very stunning compared to other Marvel films which have been pointed out to have a very like gray sort of scale to them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they're not as dark and as desaturated as the Snyder films um are for example, but they still have are somewhat monotonous and aren't as quite cinematic cinematically pleasing. As um, I, I, Guardians is. I think you have to give credit to Guardians that there is a lot of color in mm-hmm. these movies. So. First Thor movie has a lot of color. That too. Yes, that's We're true. Discredit Thor? We love <laughs> Thor on the middle of the Not Thor of the Dark World. Thor of the Dark World is one of like the grayest films I've ever watched in my mm-hmm. life. But Thor, the first Thor, is very beautiful. It's not as bleak as Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Oh God! Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince is not is not even gray. It's like all green, which it's, I get the theme they're going for, but it looks it's bad. Snakes- it's yeah, snakeskin. It is, but, but it, it looks bad. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. At least, and like, I've... Harry Potter and um, Order of the Phoenix looks great. That's a yeah. surprisingly beautiful film. I remember it being really dark, so it was a lot darker than the fourth film. But it is really, like, aesthetically pleasing. Anyways, okay. Tangent, guys. Um, so let's talk about uh, Peter Quill. Um, so my... Google Earth, always taking pictures. Do yeah, I, I really feel... We have to talk about Andy Dwyer trying to be a space hero. It wasn't even Andy Dwyer. If it was Andy Dwyer trying to be a space hero, I would have enjoyed it. I would have liked it. I feel like Chris Pratt's performance has really gone downhill ever since he became like the next Han Solo. Um, once he left, once he left the Fat Team, it was all downhill from here. Mm-hmm. He should never have gotten in shape. I'm yep. like, I'm almost, I'm betrayed. I'm at betrayed by in, Chris Pratt. Yeah, at least in the first Guardians. It felt like he was having some fun on set, but in this one, whenever he was having fun, it felt very hollow. Like whenever he was making his Peter Quill, Quill kip, quips, it was just like his quips, his quips, quips. Um, it felt like he was posing whenever he was doing a quip. First of all, and it also felt like you know every time he did he did one, he thought he thought he was very cool about himself. So it was just like his he, performance he is, really as lacked. My dad would say, "Thinking you're cool and knowing you're not." Yeah. But he doesn't know he's not. No. That's the he thinks he is. He, he thinks, he, thinks he is. He is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fast thing is, Quill, as I wrote in my article, he shouldn't be the protagonist because at its core, well, this movie, the story is his, I guess, because ego. Mm-hmm. But, like, it should be Gamora and Nebula because they are related to Thanos. And if this film does exist in the MCU, Thanos should have a bigger role because he is the villain of Infinity War. But, like, who knows that that's actually a thing because... They don't set that up. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but Quill is also just not a good protagonist. He's not likable. He's not. 
you don't want to root for him. And he's static. And I have no reason to care. He's mean. I think he's just a really, like, that's the thing. Like, you have you have characters like him who are, like, egocentric and, like, you know, etc. Like, you have Tony Stark, you have Stephen Strange. But, like, Tony and Stephen both go through arcs and develop in they really dynamic, tumbled. interesting ways. And Peter never does. He doesn't. Like, that's the thing about this film and these characters that, like, we're told they're a found family. But I don't buy it. Like, I'm with Nebula. Like, I felt like I was Nebula this entire film. <laughs> I was just like, all you do is yell at each other. You guys are so dumb. I'm so angry. Like, let me out of here. And I was like, I get you, Nebula. I feel it. Nebula. <laughs> Nebula, I feel you. And, like, Peter, I hate Peter and Gamora. That relationship is terrible. They're not even together in the comics. Peter's with Kitty Pride, which is so much better. But Zoe Saldana and Chris Pratt have reasons. no chemistry. Yeah, no. And, like, Peter just tries to force himself on her. He's like, there's a thing. And I'm like, no, there's not. Yeah, I found like, that whole little banter herself. very uncute. It was just yeah, like, it, it went on too long. Peter is terrible. I don't like it. I don't like him. <laughs> Anyways, I actually did like Peter. <laughs> I'm going to rant so much in that review. <laughs> I, I'm enjoying your ranting, Anya. This is the reason I wanted you the review, because I was just like, I can't wait to hear what Anya thinks. I can't yeah, wait like, to hear it go off. Review alien- well, we're going to review Alien Covenant and be like, eh, I guess it was okay. There were aliens. I just would have been scared the whole time. I know. Exactly. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have like, watched half the movie. Caribbean. We would have just been ranting about Johnny Depp and how he's a 50-year-old abuser, mm-hmm. and which is a, a conversation to be had. that's needed. we need to have. But mm-hmm. a fifth Pirates movie just sounds the most cumbersome. James Norrington in is, isn't in it, so like, what's the point? What is the <laughs> exactly. point? Um, what was I saying? Anyways, <laughs> we were talking about Peter Quill I, and Anya's hatred. For I actually him. somewhat Just liked absolute pure hatred. I actually somewhat <laughs> liked Peter in the first movie, even though I did not think that he deserves all the adulation he gets, because I felt like there was a little glimmer of hope for him in terms of being developed. But in this one, none of that development really came through. And he felt like he was just an observer in his own story. That was my biggest problem with this movie, was that it was about Peter, and Peter was so central to the movie, but it felt like he was barely in it at all. Like, his whole conflict with his father, I was like, okay, so this is going to be a really big point of catharsis. This is going to be a moment that is, like, extremely emotionally um, rooted and, like, will have a, a lot of impact on Peter. But it felt like nothing really happened with Peter. I, and I felt like a lot of it had to do with Chris Pratt's performance. He was really uh, attached to his whole, I'm fun, I'm I'm cute, and I'm quippy um, persona. But that doesn't work when a character like his is going through so much emotional, like such an emotional toll. Right. And it, it's like hard to find out that your father, first of all, is alive and that he is an alien, or not even an alien, he is a living planet. Who can he's control a god with Yeah, he's a, essentially a god. And, you know, Peter takes that with a grain of salt, as you'd expect him to, but he doesn't really do anything else for the rest of the movie except, you know, become damsel-eyed and then fight the final battle with his father. But he doesn't feel like a character in that. He's just a plot device. You know what? There was more emotion in that one scene in Parks and Rec when Andy Dwyer was taking the police test and the cop goes, you pull over a guy on the side of the road, turns out you're your father, what do you do? And he goes, Dad, you're alive? 
<laughs> there was more emotion and, and better acting in that one brief hypothetical scene in which Andy Dwyer was in than the entire Guardians of the Galaxy volume. I miss too. Andy and Dwyer that's the thing so much. I think with this movie is that like James Gunn the whole time was telling us how to feel. He was like, Oh, ego gave Peter Quill's mom cancer and ego killed her. Like, you need to feel like really sad. This is heartbreaking. And it didn't work because they didn't just let it happen. They like had to tell you that like this is when you are sad mm-hmm. and this is when you are happy. And that's not how a good movie should let its audience like experience the film. Yeah, the movie felt like to me like a lot of posturing. Um, yes, that you feel a little bit of that in the first film too, but it a lot more. There's a lot more of that in the second film, where it just feels like empty posturing because they don't actually have. I mean, the story could have been good. It just felt it didn't. It was so disjointed and didn't come together towards the end. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it the characters suffered from really lazy writing, and so did the plot. Um, but let's talk about... We, we talked a little bit about how, you know, there's a lot of so showing and telling and a lot of um, implied character development from the previous film, like, from the uh, old characters, the returning characters. But let's talk about some of the new characters. Um, Mantis, what did you guys think? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> The actress for Mantis was really good. Mm-hmm. She gave a good performance. The writing around Mantis was atrocious. Like, I... We first had a character played by a woman of color who is subservient to a white man, called him master, is an empath, which women are always empaths because we're emotional mm-hmm. all the time, apparently. And then you have her storyline with Drax, which I think is one of the worst storylines I have ever seen in a film. It, one, makes no sense for the character of Drax. Like, the whole point of Drax in the first film, like, in the comics, is, like, he takes everything literally. And so, like, he was one of the more comical characters. Mm -hmm. And in this film, his entire purpose is apparently to just ridicule a woman based on her looks to the point of gagging over the thought of sleeping with her, which first off, you. Second off, you. Third off, fuck you. Like, literally Mantis's whole purpose in this film was to be ridiculed by a male character over her looks. And it was awful. It was awkward. It was very mm-hmm. terrible. It was one of... It was offensive. And terrible and not funny. And like, when you're like, oh, Drax takes everything so literally, like, what am I supposed to take from that? Of him ridiculing a female character. It's basically and, an I mean, excuse for him Gamora. to just be blunt and mean. <laughs> it's mean. It's not funny. It's just mean and gross. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he calls Gamora a whore in the first film, so like, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. And this is what I mean. Like, the, the comedy in this film especially was just mean. Mm-hmm. Also, so many dick jokes. Why? So unnecessary. My friend and I, that I saw it with, we ended up counting every time there was a dick joke because it was becoming excessive and pointless and gross. I actually and don't I, recall that many dick jokes, but I might have just been zoning out. I was going to say, do you have a tally? Um, I think we counted, like, maybe, like, six. It's a lot. Oh, oh okay. When all was said and done, I mm-hmm. think. 
I'm trying to remember all of them. I can remember like four off the top of my head right now, but it was just excessive. And I was like, oh my God, like, can these like bro, bro comedy stop now? <laughs> so it is very much a it bro. Is, it is very bro y. Although I would, I would say I feel like Deadpool's a bit bro But Deadpool's supposed to be. That's true. true. Like, that's the mm. whole MO of Deadpool. And that's the problem is, that, like, everyone's like, oh, but Guardians is so much fun and it's so different from all the other Marvel movies. But, like, Marvel has built its universe on fun. Mm-hmm. Like, if you try and tell me no other Marvel film is funny, I will walk away from you because that's blatantly untrue. Like, the other Marvel movies are hysterical. Oh, yeah. I've laughed out loud in almost every single one. Mm-hmm. And their funny is character-driven and clever and not gross and not offensive. And then we have this. I think that's a good point, Anya. I feel like a lot of the humor here was not based in any character or plot. It was just, let's find a funny punchline and somehow write the story around it, rather than actually having jokes come organically from the plot. Um, What was I saying? I was going to say something about, actually, I don't mind. I don't mind Mantis. I feel like I'm bringing this, the subject back, but I'm sorry. I'm like not coherent today no. because I'm just like so like angry. I I I really like your points about the movie Anya because it really it brings more perspectives to me because I didn't think a lot about the um the problems with Drax and Mantis's relationship because for the most part I kind of liked their whole buddy comedy duo part except for you know him it being based around him insulting her for most for most of the time. But I did like that one scene in which uh, she is showing off her empath abilities for the first time. And she's, um, and Drax, she shows that, you know, Peter has a crush on Gamora or whatever. And then Drax starts laughing and then she touches him and starts laughing as well. And they point at them together. And I felt like that was a really fun and, and character driven act of good comedy and just like com- you know on the same level as each other and not actually you know be laughing together rather rather than him laughing at her so i like that and i felt like there were more moments of that although i could see like your problem with it too of it being like him just ridiculing her the, the entire time I, I think it started off cool and i liked that moment especially mm-hmm. and then i feel like I feel like it was a poor attempt at showing that the joke is on Drax because the actress who plays Mantis is very beautiful mm-hmm. and that she's not ugly in the film. They don't make her look ugly. And so, like, it's weirdly Drax is just not attracted to, like, it's traditionally. Like, it's like he's the butt women. of the joke kind of thing. Yeah, but it could, it, but it was just, it was taken way too far and it didn't, it wasn't executed perfectly yeah like the way i saw it is that he is archie in um all in the family you know he's the mm-hmm, yeah. the kind of brusque crass person who ends up being the butt of the joke because he's behind the times kind of thing um but i did like for the most part like their dynamic i think also the reason that they kept saying like they kept having that joke of Jax is not attracted to her is that they were trying to emphasize that as a platonic relationship which i like I like platonic relationships between uh, male and female characters, and I thought, for the most part, they worked as a good platonic relationship because he kind of saw her as a daughter rather than as a sexual um, or romantic. But interest. I don't think it, that was enforced enough as the as the as he sees her as a daughter. It was mm-hmm. very much not about that until that moment. That yeah, were, yeah. Were... I have a problem with that reading because a Peter and Gamora should be the platonic male female relationship in this franchise, and two. 
Drax has his line, like, they specifically do this. Drax has a line about, like, you know someone loves you if, like, you're ugly, because that means they love you for, like, what's on the inside. Like, you're beautiful on the inside. Mm -hmm. And then he has that line at the end of the film where he tells her that she's beautiful on the inside. And I think that's weird what that implies. I also think a father-daughter thing is weird if he's talking about imagining having sex with her. Yeah, but that's, like, also how Drax's mind works. I know it's, like, excusing it, but that's, like, how I feel. And on... And And that's... And the line about him saying, like, oh, you're beautiful, and meaning that, like, you know, he loves her, I don't think it means in a romantic way. I think that, you know, like, he has formed a connection and bond with her that I found was entirely platonic. Like, that's what I felt the entire movie. I think what it really comes down to is acknowledging that the writers, or James Gunn, made the conscious choice to make the entire plot between them about Mantis's looks. Mm -hmm. And, like, they could have done something different to display this whole like buddy relationship and like Drax being like blunt and literal and like just speaking his mind and they could have done this about something other than her looks and other than something sexually objectifying her mm-hmm. Agreed. but that's what James Gunn chose to go with yeah and I think that's a problem because you have it with Peter too like yeah. you have it with Peter and the Sovereigns in the very beginning of the film where he talks about sleeping with the Queen of the Sovereigns and you had it in the first film with Peter so, see, I think the problem is worse with Peter than it is with Drax because you know, at least with Drax, like we were saying before, he's kind of the butt of the joke. Whereas Peter, we're meant to empathize with him, empathize with him, and he's the one who you know we see as, the most as our surrogate. So it's like, right, oh, he's, yeah, he's like the, the the Earthling coming to space, but right. like, but he's also really a cool he playboy, the Han Solo of the film, which you know I don't think works at all when he's being no. the so the chauvinistic. That's the, that's the thing is, you know, I mean, Han Solo is, is the go-to, like, descriptor of how, you know, like, oh, he's Han, the Han Solo. But I think he's lacking the, A, the acting chops of, of a Harrison Ford. And well, also, B, the writing that came with Han Solo and the character development. That's also, I hate that comparison because we're never... People just think Han Solo is a womanizer, but we, like, never actually... The only woman he interacts with is Leia. Right. And, and like, he while does they have it terribly. Banter, <laughs> he while they have a banter, terribly, yeah. it's shown over and over and again that, like, he does respect her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, there's that really great article about Han Solo being a feminist, and that, like, the one scene, the one, like, plot where she's sexually objectified in the bikini, Han is blind. <laughs> right, exactly. Han never sees her in the bikini. Mm-hmm. So, like, I hate that comparison because, first off, Han Solo is 10 million years ahead of Peter Quill. Or, like, yeah. 10 million light years. Uh, yeah, that's oh, also my biggest wait. problem with it because we never see any evidence that Han Solo is actually a womanizer. People just kind of make that inference because, you know, he's a cool smuggler and he's so laid back and so, you know, has such swagger. But I don't think, I feel like... Yeah, we're... It's such a weird mythology that yeah. doesn't it's exist. A, it's Han a is like disinterested mythology. in Leia at first. Yeah. Yeah, like he's 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 only in it for the money. Like Yeah. It's great. And even even in Empire Strikes Back, he's not womanizing anybody. He's he obviously likes Leia and Leia obviously likes him, but they can't talk about it because they're you know, they haven't grown. Honestly, in he's a terrible way with women. Do... <laughs> like, he can't even, like, make a move on Leia yeah. until, like, three movies in. And also, so... if you've read the comics and he has, like, characters, Leia has female characters in his life, so he's also, like, the, the his, his not wife that he knows. Like, that's 
an interesting relationship because they they got married for not romantic reasons for like a job yeah so i think so first off that comparison is bad but it just goes back to like the fact that like this movie it's worse with peter quill but then it doubles down with drax for no reason and it just like rocket's also so mean and they it's mean but i feel like they try to address that try to okay so rocket's whole subplot I could see what they're trying to do by making it a parallel to Yondu. And they're like, oh, you're the same. Again, kind of telling us and not showing us. And I was like, uh, I feel like this was unnecessary. I didn't really need a whole Rocket subplot because I felt like there was no payoff except if the whole lesson for him was, if you're mean, people will push you away. And it's like, you know that. He had more, he had better um, development in the first film where, you know, he was struggling yeah. with being a creation and like an experiment. Um, I don't think he really needed to have an arc, at least the, like the like, one that he had in this movie. I feel like he was being unnecessarily mean in the beginning with no real motivation mm-hmm. or no real like there was no reasoning behind it, and then, and then they and then like because there was no reasoning behind it, the emotional arc that the that they try to put him on doesn't pay off as well as you would hope because there's no specific like there's no inciting incident for his rudeness. Mm-mm. You know, I mean, besides him just being a generally rude character. Yeah, and there's no, you don't need to have a reason, like, some characters can just be jerks because that's their personality, but, like, the whole thing with Rocket is the only reason he's palatable as a character is because of Groot. Like, Rocket's friendship with Groot is the reason why you can tolerate Rocket, and we saw that in the first film, and so it just felt unnecessary to make him, A, meaner in this film, and B, like you said, HD, give him that subplot that didn't really pay off. I would have really liked a subplot for Rocket that had to do with dealing with Groot as a baby. Because I liked their few scenes, that dynamic that they had, but it wasn't really played for more than just laughs. It was like, oh, baby Groot is being cute. Oh, he can't understand things. Rocket tries to yell at him and tell him what to do. But there's no real adjustment for them because their dynamic was one of the core, like the heart and soul of the first film. Especially Um, Groot. Yeah, yeah, especially like... Root and like how what he became for the rest of the family, but he was that first for Rocket, and there was no adjustment for that in this movie. And there, there was, could have been a really it would good, have been interesting. It, there could have been a really good like trifecta parallelism between Ego and Peter Quill as right parenting baggage, Yondu and Peter Quill with parenting baggage, the and then Rocket and Groot as like a newfound parenting issue like that's great yeah like they it, it could have been rocket and Groot dealing with this newfound like fatherhood and then peter quill finds out he has a he ha- you know who his father is and it could have been like this parallel track mm-hmm. but i feel like that they didn't they didn't utilize that parallelism that no. there's a lot of i mean there's uh, there's a lot of per- parental baggage going on in this film mm-hmm. with uh, the unseen uh, Thanos with Gamora and Nebula because like a lot of their you know what they deal with was what Thanos put them through and again a lot of which again had they been the protagonist of the first film would have been so like just these films would just be narratively stronger yeah I think Gamora the and Nebula is, are great but the like bummer, there's just not enough of them and they're not paid off enough the, the, the bummer of that is that Karen Gillan was on um, Happy Sad Confused with Josh Horowitz, and she was saying that there were scenes in the first movie that got cut that were about 
uh, her her childhood growing up. And basically the scenes that made it into volume two about how um, she was talking about when they were kids and she would lose and she would lose a part of her body to be placed, be replaced by like a robotic arm or a robot, robotic eye. Like that, that was supposed to be, that was in an earlier draft of the first movie. Mm. And in fact, that was what Karen Gillan said she auditioned with. So it's interesting that it makes, it makes sense that they would want to put that into volume two to just to get that performance out of Karen Gillan and a, a deeper relationship with Gamora and, you know, strength d- deepening her character, but one movie too late. Yeah. I agree. I would have watched a whole movie of that because uh, that was the best scene, I think, for me, more so than the climactic uh, Yondu sacrifice scene um, was Nebula's whole speech about how she just wanted a sister, how she suffered through her whole childhood, just having her whole body replaced. It was really affecting. And I, I'm sad that there wasn't more of Gamora and Nebula. Like, I felt like we saw a lot of Nebula, which was good, more so than I expected. But there wasn't that much of Gamora which I, she was like reacting for a lot of it. So I felt yeah. like there was a loss for that. And it's like, you could have spent more time developing Gamora and Nebula if you just didn't shove in a romantic plot between Gamora and Peter, which is unnecessary. Yeah. Cause we got that last ep- movie too. And doesn't make sense. It, it, yeah, it just, yeah, it's not good. Nope. Um, let's talk about ego. Um, He's one of the few bright spots of this movie, I think. I think he works really as a villain. And Kurt Russell is just so great and so scenery-truing as him. I love him. Kurt Russell was really great at luring you into thinking he was cool Mm -hmm. and a great guy. And then completely just shitting down your throat with, like, exposition of how evil he is. And, like, it, it did affect me when he, like, revealed that he was the one that gave... Peter Quill's mom, her cancer, mm-hmm. like that, I took that as like a personal offense, like maybe because I was, I was in the moment in the movie, I was, you know, I was engaged with the movie. And when that happened, I audibly gasped, gasped. I was like, <gasps> you know, like, I wasn't expecting it. I thought that it just was random cancer. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it was a, that he did it, because evil. Yeah. Like, oh, so I have a question. Did you know Ego was a bad guy before you watched the film? I had a hunch he was, but I, I didn't. I tried to not that, spoil myself. But yeah, because I because I had seen the trailers and there was no villain, quote unquote. Like there was no like Lee Pace. There was no you know this is who the villain is. This is what we're gonna do. There was a lot of like okay, so Ego's the villain, right? Mm-hmm. Throughout the first first two acts, and then once he was revealing his master plan. And I was like, "This is a bit shady. This is not super, in- like, good." And then, like, okay, when that's he- interesting, and which it goes to show you, like, comics fan versus not comics fan. So I know Ego is a bad guy. Right. He's a bad guy in the comics. Right. So like, I knew he was a bad guy going in from the get go. So when he had the whole line about like, "I couldn't go back a third time to Earth. I would have stayed there with your mother." I was like, "You fucking killed her." I like called it, and I was like, "Because you're the bad guy," which made him less effective for me. Like, I thought maybe he was just, like, just, like, a shady guy, and he has shady motives, but ultimately good. And then, like, as more, as time went on, I obviously was like, okay, so, so he's the villain. I think the fact that he admitted he killed her, but he kind of just did it nonchalantly. He was just like, oh, yeah, I killed her. I had to. It kind of went with his personality of being a complete narcissist. You know, he's yeah. literally yeah. ego. 
Um, and I think that a lot of his motivations, this, it bothered me at first. I was just like, what's his motivation though? His motivation is that he thinks he is the greatest being in the world, in the universe. Yeah. And so it makes sense that he wants to make the whole, form the whole galaxy to look like him because he thinks that's bestowing a gift upon it. Um, so that really works for me. I like how simple Ego is. Yes. He's He's overcome with his own Mm self-importance. Exactly. So, um, the twist Worked both worked for me and worked for me like with the character because I was like oh of course he would admit it because he's just like of course I had to do it he just uh he doesn't think of the ramifications of it just because of the size of his ego yeah I think um to kind of start touching on like structure a bit mm-hmm. I think the end of this film is a problem um I think first off this film is way too long mm-hmm. like this film should have been cut by at least twenty minutes. Um, and you could have easily cut the in, everything with the sovereigns, most of the things with the ravagers. There were way too many storylines. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the point of the sovereigns was, besides to just like get a plot in motion. I think it, it was... was supposed. To... Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say it was kind of like harking on, like James Bond openings with like at the end of a bigger plot. And we're seeing the end of it as the opening but theme. But they're throughout the rest of the film. Well, that's the other thing. is it, Then they're just kind of t- loose ends that are never really tied up until the like the third mid-credits scene. With Adam Warlock. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty pointless. They should have cut all of them. They should have cut most of the stuff with the Ravagers. They should have definitely cut Sylvester Stallone. That was pointless. We shouldn't have met Yondu on that weird planet. Like mm-hmm. That whole scene was pointless. Um, it kind of made sense to introduce the concept of him trafficking children, though, and that's why he was kicked out of being a ravager. Because they're just like, yeah, you but did they the could un- have done it yeah. in a simpler way, like yeah, in I less agree. scenes. Less like, like it just didn't need to be as prolonged as it was. Like this mm-hmm. film is just too long, and they just spent too min- too much time on storylines that ultimately don't really matter. I think they yeah, could like have the definitely whole cut Praetorius ravagers. Yeah, could have been cut. I think they could have definitely cut the um, the sovereign. And maybe replace some of what they did to drive the plot with the Ravagers. Like, you know, the whole treacherous Ravagers thing. Um, like the mutiny. They could have turned that into the whole, like, space chase that the Sovereigns end up doing halfway through the film. And, yeah, uh, yeah the Sovereigns, I think that in the end they were only there to make the final third act of the film, like, more bigger and more bombastic like the big battle you know um i thought they were yeah. also like completely useless though so the end of this film though is a problem for me as is the rest of the film um so it's really in a movie like this you have to have stakes mm-hmm. and in this film the stakes simply weren't good enough like first you had the worry that peter Quill wasn't going to survive but you know it's not going to happen because he's your protagonist we know he's in infinity war so like mm-hmm. Stakes are gone there. Then you have the stakes of Ego trying to take over the galaxy. Fine. In every movie like this, you're going to have a villain who's doing something bad and you have to stop them. So, and you know they're going to stop them because it's a Marvel film and you're going to stop the bad guy. So to compare this film, one of the worst Marvel movies, with the best Marvel movie of all time, Captain America Winter Soldier, that movie knows its stakes. Like, first you have, like, a bad guy you have to defeat him, that's fine. But then you also have Bucky coming back brings totally new stakes into the game. Then you have Hydra taking over S.H.I.E.L.D., which affects the rest of the universe and has big stakes. Mm-hmm. And they're complex, and they're nuanced, and they're and developed. It... And in this film, there is none of that. 
Winter Soldier successfully ties the emotional stakes with the larger stakes at hand, whereas these films have those two. They are present in the movie, but they're never fully tied together because Peter Quill is not a character. <laughs> he does not exist outside of just looking pretty and being a battery. And I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier with like this these this emotional story or this like the personal story between Peter Quill and his father became the larger third act plot of ego taking over the galaxy and that became like the thing that they had to do but it didn't they didn't do it as well as they could have I think they had the recipe for it I think the structure was there I just think the payoff was bad like I like the premise of you know Peter's father um, being ego and ego wanting to take him in um, to help him like take over the galaxy and you know drawing luring him in at first with the promises of being a good father and I like that concept I like that premise but I don't think the payoff was good because the characters weren't developed enough Peter was didn't have any agency in his own story um, the subplots were more interesting like at least the, the supporting characters were more interesting I think there were probably too many things going on that didn't really that made the film feel like it fell apart towards the end yeah like it didn't go here to bring it back to empire strikes back because this movie takes a lot of inspiration from empire strikes back um you know the whole join me and together we can rule the galaxy as father and son is summed up so well in the in the emotional arcs that Luke Skywalker's going on with because he just found out who his father was, mm-hmm. and he's and then he has a decision. He could join him at that very moment, succumb to the dark side, and and then instead he chooses to fall to oblivion. He mm-hmm. doesn't know where he's going, and he's like, "I'm out of here. Like, no, I'm never. I'll never join you. I'm out." And Peter doesn't have that agency. He doesn't have the agency to say no. He doesn't have until- any time to grapple with the choice. Yeah. Because the switch is so quick, and then as soon as he's like, oh, wait, you're a bad guy, he gets impaled, essentially. Right, because, like, Luke Skywalker knew that Darth Vader was always a bad guy. Mm-hmm. He just found th- the new piece of information was that this evil ba- bad guy is his father. It went from Ego is a kind of shady person, but overall good in in his mind. You know, oh, they had a cool they had catch, that was cute. And then, oh, no, he's an evil guy oh, no, I can't do anything about it. Oh, no, he killed my mom? What? Mm-hmm. And, like, he just kept doing... He just kept seeing the plot happen as he was reacting to it. Exactly. And he had... I like the moment where he shoots his father with when he finds out who he, that he killed his mom. And, like, I, that was, like, a, a cathartic moment. But, like, overall, for the, for the most of the movie, Peter's just kind of going, well, okay, this is happening. Yeah. And really doesn't have the arc to like do anything about it or mm-hmm. like make a choice. Like he really is just kind of watching it all happen. Yeah. Even if there was a scene where, you know, Mantis made the reveal earlier and the guardians told him that his father was bad. Then there was a scene where he was trying to convince them and convince himself. I think there was like a little scene like that, but it, it played off, didn't play off really well. It was like really quick, and the and it was just Gamora being like, "Hey, he's shady," and he's like, "No, he's not." So right. it didn't it didn't feel like he had any chance to have any emotional, um, you know, turmoil. He didn't really. He was just like, 
like imagine this movie grap- him grappling with the fact that his father is evil but he wants to have a relationship with his father like right. and he has to like work, and 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 he doesn't and he is yet to reveal to his father that he knows his true intentions like that's good there storytelling could been, there could have been a lot more back and forth you know it, it could have been a lot of self-reflection on Peter. It could have been like, who does, you know, who does he want to be? Does he want to be more like his father? Or does he want to be human? Like he, like he has this God side to him and he has this human side and it's kind of casually revealed that he just has this like power, but he doesn't grapple with it. Like mm-hmm. he just kind of, he, you know, he He's doesn't just like, ever, oh, I guess I'm human now at the end. Right. Like he doesn't, he never takes, he never takes a moment to realize that he has this conflicting personality or not personality conflicting like identity, identity. Exactly. That good word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he has this conflicting identity and I think I, I, he does end up, you know, choosing to kill his father, which does take away his God side, but he doesn't, grapple with that he never he never grapples with the fact that he has magical powers right do you know who grapples with mortality and godlike identity and daddy issues thor i was gonna say is it thor and you know who does it so much better than peter quill thor Thor. (laughs) you know who does it so much better than james gunn kenneth brana (sighs) upcoming thor is a better film than guardians of the thor is a better guardians of the galaxy volume 2 than guardians of the galaxy volume 2 is Basically. Yep. Very frustrating. Thor was also, ahead of like, its they time. They could have made it thematically stronger with Gamora and her relationship with Thanos. Exactly. And involving that with Peter and his relationship with Ego and like them talking about it. Instead, you just get Peter yelling at Gamora for that saying, like, been... I feel uncomfortable about this. And like Gamora could have been like, hey, like my dad is also terrible. But like they didn't go there. That could have been an incredible... They instead made them dance and be like, we're Sam and Diane. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> yes. Agreed. Uh, I was going to say, that could have been an incredible moment, like, in um, the Winter Soldier with the um, Captain America and Black Widow scenes. That Those were great character mo- moments between the two of them. You know, they're dealing with this, you know... Hydra is within shield plot, but they still have time to deal with their characters and who they are, like who they are as people. Like they're grappling with the, with these issues and grappling with themselves. Whereas with Guardians of the Galaxy, they never take a moment to just talk about the shit that's happening. Nope, because they have to insert a joke. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I feel like Guardians of the Galaxy could be a, a super great franchise if it wasn't about the shtick. Agreed. Like. The shit, the shit could be there. It could be a, spa- a funny space opera romp, but also have an, an incredible emotional payoff and incredible emotional arcs. Like, that's a thing you can do that was done with... It's been done before. It's been, you know... I'm trying to think of a movie that's similar that isn't Star Wars, obviously. Um, <laughs> Kingsman. Uh, Kingsman. Kingsman has a lot of shtick to it. But it's also a great movie because there's emotional payoffs and, and and arcs that go with character development. And it's funny and it's slick and it all these things that Guardians is, but better because it's just better written. It's more solid. It's stronger narratively and thematically. The characters are better. There's more emotional payoff, like you said. Mm-hmm. And I think that's my problem is there's nothing wrong with a film like Guardians that's just, you know, 
here to entertain you and here to have a little bit of fun, but also within the larger context of the MCU, it just falls so short because the MCU has built itself on fun and great characters Mm -hmm. and having emotional payoffs while still being fun. And Guardians struggles to balance all of those. And so it sacrifices emotional payoff and character to just have fun. And it shows and it hurts by just paling in comparison to the rest of the Marvel films. I completely agree. Um, Yeah, the flat characters and the flat storytelling and non-emotional stakes, uh, really low emotional stakes, just don't make for a great film. And I think that's a good way to wrap up our Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Volume 2 review. Um, what would you guys rate this this movie out of five stars? Three and a half. HD. I'll give it two stars. Anya? 1.5. All right. Let's move on to... I'm a terrible person. <laughs> Let's move on to the last segment of our episode... I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. All right, Anya, what do you really like this week? Besides trash and Guardians of the Galaxy, <laughs> I do really like that. So now that summer TV is over, or summer TV, hold on, let me try this again. So now that regular season TV is over little bit more free time, so it's time to catch up on TV shows that you've been meaning to get around to, while also reading and watching movies. Just too much media consumption, guys. We're in There's just a media. lot of it. It's too much. Too much. So, I have finally gotten around to watching BBC's The Musketeers series, hmm. which is their series about Three Musketeers, and it lasted for three seasons. I always meant to get around to watching it because I have loved Three Musketeers since I was a little girl. The book and the 90s film, less so the 2010s film, the one with Christoph Waltz. Oh, you mean the one with Logan Lerman? I do mean that one. D'Artagnan? <laughs> Not that movie. But the 90s movie and the book, I love. And as you guys know very well, I love swashbuckling adventures, especially if they're set in period settings. And so I'm watching BBC series. I'm finished with the first season. There were three so three seasons total. And it's just a lot of fun, and it's exciting, and they have good female characters, and two out of four of the Musketeers are people of color, and that actually comes into play in the plot. And Santiago Cabrera plays Aramis. He's from Heroes and Merlin, and he's just delightful. Um, My two favorite Musketeers are Aramis and Porthos, and they're great in the series. So I'm just really having fun watching just a buckling adventure and you know enjoying the fun sword fights and exciting music and beautiful cinematography so I'm having a lot of fun watching the Musketeers also the doctor Peter Capaldi plays villain Cardinal Richelieu oh my so, god does he have a mustache he does he has a, like a weird goatee too oh my god of That's course um, it's also like playing British actor bingo because like in the first season alone uh, like, J.J. Field was in it, James Callis was in it. From You're going to have to say Willoughby. who else they've been in. Oh, J.J. Field is a British actor. He's been in um, Northanger Abbey, Austin Land, 
other things. Okay, I haven't seen any. James well, it'd be Callis. like all things I haven't watched. Uh, James Callis is Gaius from BSG. Oh, Walter. <laughs> yeah. James Callis was also in Austinland. So weird. It's really fun <laughs> watching British stuff because they all just like coexist and mingle together. Because there are only six actors studio. there. Yeah, so The Musketeers is a lot of fun, and I'm really enjoying it, and I love this story. So that's awesome. what I'm enjoying this week. Wait, so does Gaius play a musketeer? No, he was only in one episode. Oh, okay. But it was a really good episode, um, because you find out that like he's like a merchant, and he's like, I'm in the trading business. And then you find out that the trading business he's in is slaves, and Porthos is played by a black actor, and that's actually, like, a whole thing, is that Porthos's mother was a slave, and so it becomes, like, a whole plot, and it's really good. And it's not something that you would expect a show like this to, like, deal with, but it does. Does the show relatively follow the plot of the book? No, the show is, I mean, yes and no, like, you still have Cardinal Richelieu as a villain, and, like, D'Artagnan's not really, like, a musketeer yet, um, but, and, like, Milady de Winter was married to Aramis, and now she's a bad guy, and so it follows a lot of, like, the main plot beats but it takes a lot of liberty with other elements too right because obviously it's a televised series and not a movie and you got to make it your own put your own stamp on it right so it's a lot of fun and i really like it cool all right willoughby what is your really like for this week logan noir oh i picked up the logan blu-ray and target has an exclusive version of it that has not only the black and white version, which comes standard with the Blu-ray, but also a booklet of a bunch of pictures that James Mangold himself took on the set of Logan and portraits of all the characters, and they're all black, in black and white. It's very contrasting. It's very, like, grim and, you know, very much in, in tone with the movie. And uh, I watched the black and white version of Logan on Thursday, and... I almost never want to watch the color version again because <laughs> I really love how how stark and how contrast how contrasted the entire movie is when you put it in black and white. And it really elevates it to something more, more than just a superhero film. Like it really takes it and it puts it in a time and like obviously it takes place in the future, but by by throwing by taking out all the saturation and upping the contrast, they really made it a, a, almost timelessness. Mm-hmm. And I really like like everything about it. And every shot just became like five times more beautiful. And I'm like, there obviously was some different color grading going in. They didn't just slap a black and white filter on. They obviously recolor graded, or, or get, I guess just regraded the entire movie to make it work for black and white. But they did it so well. And it's just like every shot could be a frame. Like you know that the 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 YouTube video essayist, every frame of painting. Like that is what this movie is. Like I want so many frames of this movie as paintings on my walls. Like it's like so good, so great. And you know the um, the story is still there. Like it, it, the black and white. You know it elevates everything else by taking away the color. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. Logan Noir. I can't wait have to you watch seen, it. Um Mad Max in black and white? I have not yet. I've been meaning to. Um okay. I've been meaning to see how well it does. I've heard that the black and white is not perfect. The silent um, one I've heard a lot of good things about. 
The silent, the silent version heard... of Mad Max. Oh yeah, I haven't heard much about that. But mm-hmm. they definitely like they released the black and black and chrome. I like the names that these the black and white versions getting. Like Mad Max Fury Road, black and chrome, or Logan Noir. Like they, they, it's it's cool. Like you know they're having fun with it, and I like this trend of like taking these stark action movies and throwing yeah black and white on them. It's an interesting trend, and I, I think it's um it lends a level of prestige to it. I'm not sure whether like I think at least. Logan and Mad Max worked really well for that whole thing, but I don't know oh, how yeah. it'll work for other superhero films. Or not, every, not every movie could pull this off, but I feel like those two in general could. Mm-hmm. And they I did. think Logan works better. Like, I haven't seen Mad Max. I haven't seen either in black and white yet, but I think I already like the idea of Logan better because I feel like Mad Max, first off, I love its colors. Yeah, And I think the, the colors are really important thematically to Mad Max in a way the colors of Logan are less so. Mm-hmm important because i feel like mad max just the colors are so much more prominent in that film and they lend another like love layer to mad max whereas logan sort of like the brownish sort of you know like desert you can kind of still get that with the black and white like it was still pretty logan in color was still pretty desaturated like it was a lot of sepia tones and and brown and gold colors whereas taking it all into black and white really just puts it into a different perspective. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'd be willing to think Anya, I know you weren't super impressed with Logan. Like, a don't say off. that. I really <laughs> liked Logan. You liked it. Okay. I re I really, really, really like Logan. I okay. just, it hasn't really stayed with me the way I expected it to. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think that's be- And I think it's, it really just comes down to Logan as a character. Right. Yeah, it doesn't appeal to you personally. If this was called Scott, (laughs) it would be my favorite movie of all time. (laughs) Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, So I'd be willing to... to, I'd be uh, interested to know what your thoughts on Logan Noir are for both of you. So um, that's what I really like. Awesome. Uh, So I would be remiss not to mention the, uh, the reason that our section is called I Really Like You. Because Carly Rae Jepsen released her new summer single, um, well, her newest single, came out conveniently for the summer, conveniently to be the song of the summer. It's called Cuts of the Feeling, and it is a great, fun pop single um, that single-handedly saved 2017. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. It's just, it's so fun, and it's so cheery, as is, like, most of Carly Rae Jepsen's repertoire, which I feel like is really needed in this time and age, especially in 2017. And it doesn't feel mass produced. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like a general bop that, right. That, cause like Carly Rae Jepsen hasn't really had a lot of, like, she's obviously well known. Emotion is a great album, but cri- like critically more than like commercially, commercially, like mm-hmm. it, none of her songs I ever heard on the radio uh, besides uh, Call Me Maybe. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting that she's a, she's got great a great discography going on, but no one's listening to it. Yeah. Except her diehard fans. <laughs> her diehard fans and the critics. She's an actual queen. Yeah. I love her. I, I really like, you know, that she can do just really good pop. And, you know, pop comes with the whole baggage of being, it's mass-produced, it's popular, it's for the masses. But, you know, it, it's, it feels like 
genuine pop. I'm not really sure how to say it. It just feels like genuinely happy music. I liked Taylor Swift's 1989, but I thought that Emotion did a better 80s-inspired album than mm-hmm. 1989 was. Mm-hmm. We yeah. should also note that Cut to the Feeling was intended to be on side B of Emotion, but was instead released as a song to uh, for the soundtrack of the animated movie Leap, yep. in which Carly Rae Jepsen is also a character. So she has a whole... Yeah, it's part of the film. I actually right, did not like, know that. Like last year's can't stop the feeling which was about from trolls and was released five months ahead of the movie to be a song of the summer um can't stop this feeling wishes it were cut to the feeling exactly exactly i feel like carly ray jetson was like you know what let's release a song called something something feeling and it's going to be so much better than jt's overplayed overproduced number Exactly. Can I just also mention that Carly Jepsen can do anything? When I saw Cinderella on Broadway, she played Cinderella. So I saw really? her as Cinderella, and she she was delightful. I feel like she's just a delightful human being in general. Right? Anyways. We are so blessed to have her. We are. So, I really, really, really like you, Carly Rae Jepsen. Hey! Alright. Yeah. So. <laughs> I was just like, wait, is it my turn? <laughs> We got this. (laughs) So, if you guys have any thoughts on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Logan Noir, Carly Rae Jepsen's new single, Cut to the Feeling, or BBC's The Musketeers, definitely come chat with us. And where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook. If you search for us there, we're on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. We're on SoundCloud. We're also on iTunes and Google Play, where you can rate, review, and subscribe to us there. And where can they find you guys on the internet? You can find me at htranbui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. Don't at me about Guardians. And you can find me on Twitter at Willie Dobbs. And please at me about Guardians, because I like the movie. All right. uh, Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.